Welcome back to another episode of Sean and Ed's Do Baseball. I'm Sean. And I'm Ed's. And we're doing some baseball. That's right. We're a bi-weekly baseball history podcast where the story catcher doesn't know what the story pitcher is going to be throwing them. And that's dangerous. <laughs> we determined that last time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. We determined that's a terrible metaphor. Yeah. We're going to see where we go with that We're from just now hanging on, on to it, man. Yeah. We're hanging on to it. Okay. We, we, don't, we don't call pitches. We just <laughs> roll with the flow. All right. Well, uh, we want to say thanks for listening and uh, follow us on Twitter at Doing Baseball and Instagram at Doing Baseball. You can follow us at our personal Twitters. I'm at Ed's Do Baseball. And I'm at Sean Do Baseball. That's correct. And uh, you give us, give us a rating or a review if you're listening to us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Uh, and of course, thanks for listening. Tell your friends, tell your family, tell strangers, tell anybody, really. Yes. Just please, for the love of God, make <laughs> yes, this worth our time. <laughs> yeah. Give us suggestions for stories if you like. We'd appreciate it very much. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Honestly, we're just excited to be here. Uh, so we're getting into the almost those dog days of summer. Uh, yeah, this one's coming at you at the end of June. Honestly, uh, Edzie, are you going to... You know, raise the temperature higher than it already possibly is. I don't know if I would say that. You always kind of throw to me that I'm bringing the heat, and I never <laughs> have claimed to be doing that. But uh, it is warming up. It is, uh, uh, I guess, we're going to be celebrating Canada Day in Canada a little bit. Uh, I guess. Well, I, some people will be, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I was uh, I was driving across Canada recently, actually, and uh, uh-huh. that kind of inspired me but also the date inspired me to kind of look up sort of maybe uh more of a canadian story okay and i was looking for uh i thought i could remember a story of like a league existing in saskatchewan mm-hmm. in the 1800s possibly yeah and i i tried looking up uh some information on that on that story that i i think basically what i'm getting at is maybe i'm misremembering uh-huh. that and i stumbled onto like another story that has a bit of a canadian touch but i'm also happy to tell this story because um something that you know i think is maybe a little important to mention um like you know i don't want to get too into it or whatever but over the last couple of years in this country, anyway, I, we've made some horrible, horrible discoveries at some uh, oh, yeah. residential schools yeah. across this country. And I think it's uh, important to acknowledge that uh, terrible history that's uh, happened in this country. So, 100%. Um, I personally am not going to be wearing Canadian stuff on. Uh, Canada Day. Well, that's when you said people will be selling Canada Day. I'm like, yeah, some some people will. Yeah, yeah, some people will. Yeah. Other people, not so much. Yeah. So anyway, I'm, I'm I'm you know happy to kind of stumbled upon this story that, as I mentioned originally, I was looking for just a Canadian touch, but it's also you know ended up being a story about uh, uh, a famous Native American player. So holy shit. Okay. All right. Let's do this. So I'll just get started. And I also want to mention kind of. Like how you did in the last episode, uh, a lot of this research comes from a very well-written Sabre artica- article, article by Bill Lamb, yeah. uh, which, you know, often those articles create, like, uh, a good 
anchor for the timeline of yes. like what happens in a player's career or whatever. 100%. So like, uh, I, I want to thank Bill specifically for like going through that timeline and combing through, like you mentioned in your episode, a lot of the, the newspaper articles that would have been difficult to find, uh, yes. myself, you know, particularly, I mean, not particularly like the sporting life, sporting life probably be a little bit more common to, to find, find but yeah. he combed through a lot of Southern papers in North Carolina and Georgia and stuff. So I want to thank him yeah. for doing that for me because you know there's a lot of good information in here yeah we have full-time jobs we yeah. do not uh, <laughs> not not necessarily you know we spend a lot of time doing research for these episodes but yeah it's yeah. it's it's always amazing you know when somebody's done it first who are we kidding we, we, we didn't yeah we, we didn't do the primary research yeah, for basically any... what we're saying is if you want to <laughs> learn a lot more about the subjects that we cover on this podcast there's a lot more literature out there than what we oh yeah uh, give you oh yeah uh, and I, I also want to in addition to bill's uh combing through stuff there i also covered uh or got a lot of coverage from an article at, at the plate.com by rich neckler mm -hmm. and i just wanted to throw that out there as well before i get started but anyway uh we'll get started by saying uh like you know in in the day the 19th century conflicts and chronological gaps in the censuses mm -hmm. were pretty common at the time yeah not just for like indigenous americans but just americans in general, in general. but yeah. anyway uh uh it is likely despite this fact that charles or sorry, John Charles Bender was born in Crow Wing County, Minnesota mm -hmm. in October of 1878. Mm -hmm. And he was the second of at least 11 children born to Albertus Bliss Bender, mm -hmm. a homesteader of Dutch or German descent, yeah. born in Massachusetts in 1849, yeah. and his half Ojibwe wife, Mary Razor, okay. who was also uh, born as Pei Shaw Dioque was her birth name wonderful uh, chief bender uh -huh. which is john's brother yeah should mention if you're not already familiar i uh, yeah yes well yeah chief bender yeah been to the hall of fame mm -hmm. and, uh, mm -hmm. yes yes uh so biographies of chief bender maintain that albertus was of german descent but chief himself actually described his father as dutch yeah so there's kind of a bit of a discrepancy there but i guess we're gonna go with the family's word yeah, I think you kind of <laughs> go with the, his, his kid's word over. But, I mean, at the same point, you know, just not to get too nuanced, it's like there was some borders moving constantly in Europe at the time true, around true. there, too, right? <laughs> right and yes. Especially in the 1870s and stuff with the Germans. So, right. it's, uh, yeah. That's could, true. Could, that, could be a little bit of both, if you know what true. I mean. I got you. I got yeah. you. Okay, so uh, just to mention here, the Bender children who survived childhood mm -hmm. were Maud, who was born in 1873, John, mm -hmm. 1878, Frank, 1881, Charles, 1884, mm -hmm. Anna, 1886, Elizabeth, 1888, Emma, 1890, Albert, 1892, Fred, 1894, George, 1900, and James, 1902. Okay. They're just pumping them out. There. Just birthing. Jesus. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. Just child. Very, very too healthy, very fertile people found each other, clearly. Right. right. <laughs> so you got a, a European born 
father and yeah. a half Ojibwe wife. And uh, despite that he was only a quarter Ojibwe, this is from the Sporting News on December 24th, 1942. Mm-hmm. Quote, although only one quarter Ojibwe, Charles, John, and the other Bender children for whom there is photographic evidence were all distinctly Indian. Yeah, okay. So they're just like, well, does it matter? They look it. <laughs> yeah. That's what they're saying. <laughs> yeah. So when John was still a boy, Albertus and Mary moved the family to the White Earth Reservation in northwestern Minnesota to farm acreage near Brainerd, Minnesota, which was doled out to Indian claimants by the government. Mm-hmm. So in basically, here's a bit of background. In 1887, Congress passed the Dawes Allotment Act. Mm-hmm which authorized the Indian office to allot from 80 to 160 acres of land to enrolled members of any reservation for the stated purpose of engaging in farming and ranching. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. I was just like, hey, so all this land that you used to have, here's what you do. Come to my office, sign on up. We'll give you... We'll give you between this amount this and amount this amount. This amount. All right, well, we used to just have... All of it, you know, so we'll just keep doing... No, 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 this is much better. You ever heard of cows? <laughs> yeah, this is the shitty stuff that they did. Yeah. So the unallotted lands were then sold to the general public, and in order to implement the main features of the Dawes Act, Congressman Newt Nelson sponsored what passed as the 1888 Nelson Act that provided for the concentration of all Ojibwe except the Red Lake on the White Earth Reservation and for the allotment of the reservation land, including timber land to them. So, they're just... Basically, they're trying to get all the indigenous people onto a reservation. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They're just like, hey, yay, yeah, well, yeah, you guys totally deserve some stuff. So just... Here's you know, a set amount of land, but you can only have it over here. Yeah, exactly. And <laughs> let me tell you what happens if we find out that that land's actually worth something. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, wait. No, no, no it's yours. Damn, 100%. You the loud part, the quiet part loud again. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> So an amendment, an amendment to the bill altered the consolidation policies. So they're not consolidating all the tribes anymore. I okay. Guess. Uh, however, and permitted the Red Lake Reservation to remain closed or unallotted to individual tribal members. It also allowed other Ojibwe to take up allotments on their old reservation lands rather than at White Earth. By 1900, White Earth had become the home of 3,800 of the state's 10,000 Ojibwe. Okay. Okay. So So this is like the, the government as you say, concentrating people into one spot through legislation. Yes. Yep. Yeah. So they go. Yeah. The benders go. The benders the benders are one of these families. Yes. So John was sent along with a number of other reservation children to the Philadelphia area to further their educational at Episcopal church run prep schools and then attended the Carlisle Indian Industrial School in Carlisle, Pennsylvania yep. at the beginning of September 1896. Mm-hmm. So, this is the American equivalent of the residential schools, I assume. So, you would have to ask my dad. Yes. But I believe I have a relative that went to Carlisle, Carlisle. around this time. Wow. Okay. So yeah. 
Yeah. I will have to ask you. Yeah, no, that that is, that is, and that's, that's as soon as I knew the Carlisle school was coming here and I was like, holy shit. (laughs) So I guess, as you know, the Carlisle program was designed to immerse Native American youngsters in Christian values and the dominant European American culture. Hell yeah. Yeah. So they're trying to get the Native out of them. I mean, heck yeah. Love Jesus. (laughs) (laughs) Fuck. But the school, this school, was also well known for its athletic pursuits. Mm -hmm. John and his younger brother, eventual baseball Hall of Famer, Charlie, became members of the Carlisle football and baseball teams. Mm -hmm. Although Tom Swift wrote in his, uh, his biography of Charlie that John, quote, didn't develop at Carlisle to the point where he earned a spot on the varsity baseball squad. Interesting. Yeah. So he's a late bloomer. Yeah. Or maybe yeah. they just, you know... He's just not good enough for varsity anyway. Well... He's an intramural guy. Well, yeah, and he's also... They're probably like, you know... It's, a, it's... I mean, the Carlisle School, you know, is... You know, it's not good. <laughs> uh, it, it's... I... You know, just based on what I've read about it, right? It was a little bit... It, yeah, it's still awful. There's no there, there's no way of saying other than it was awful. Um, but at least, like, yeah. But I'm saying, like, maybe he just didn't make the baseball team because he was just too, like, if rejecting of that. But it sounds mm, like... Possible. Possible. Like, that's what I mean. I'm just throwing things out there, mm. and I'm just saying, like, yeah, Carlisle was, like, kind of... Like, if he did anything, if you did anything native in the least, you'd be reprimanded right. for it, right? He, he, yes. Do yeah. you have the Carlisle school motto or no, whatever? No. Do you know oh, what it is? Yeah, it's awful. I didn't go too far into the oh, Carlisle school. Yeah, no, the Carlisle, well, as I say, I believe I have a relative that's gone there, and I've heard about some of their, anyways, it's, it's a very well-known, you know, Indian school in the U.S., mm-hmm. and their motto was, kill the Indian, save the man. Wow. Yeah. Holy fucking shit, that's <laughs> fucking awful. Yeah, I don't know if that was, like, written on the school, but the guy, Carlisle, that's yeah, what that's, he said, yeah, and his... he was like, "Well, we'll do it with sports. Of course, we'll, we'll you know we'll make them into baseball is an base... American game." Well, and if you think about that, if you're you know, I mean, obviously there were so many awful things, but but you know, I mean, I guess it's better to culturally genocide people by like being like, "Let's play sports together," as opposed to you know, <laughs> I I guess beating yeah, them and murdering any consolation. Them. Like, yeah, I don't fuck. know. Yeah, yeah, yeah this is and a tough subject, yeah, especially something. Yeah, it hits home for me. So yeah, um, so yeah, that's the Carlisle School motto. Just yeah. so you know. Okay, and yeah, and it. I, I'm wondering if maybe he uh, didn't make the team because of like some. He'd be about 18 at this time. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, if his birth date is is correct. Yeah. So like I'm just. I mean, he maybe started having problems earlier, but you know there'll yeah. be some problems. We'll see. Oh my And goodness. maybe this contributed to it, but maybe this school, and I'm sure it did, also contributed to the problems that he had. Yeah. Other sources state that John Bender was a star pitcher at Carlisle, just like his brother. But no matter the case, John's time at Carlisle was not for long. He was expelled from the school on unknown grounds on March 8th, 1900. See? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. So, he's out of there. He is a bit of a badass. Yeah. a boy. John's whereabouts following his expulsion from Carlisle are unclear, but tribal censuses from the time place him back at the White Earth Reservation until his return to baseball in 1902. Mm-hmm. This time is exclusively an outfielder. Ooh, okay. In his 1902 season, John saw action for four different teams, though. Two in the Class D Iowa South Dakota League and two in the Independent Northern League, and he batted a promising 300 average. 
Nice. He's doing all right. He's bouncing around a lot. In 1903, John was back in the Northern League, which had become a Class D League at this point. Mm -hmm. But he was with a different team, this time in Duluth, Minnesota, with the Duluth Cardinals. And he got into 63 games that year, batting 302. Mm -hmm. So he's showing some consistency there. He's a bench guy, it seems, but he's... It's a bench guy, it seems, but he's getting hits when he gets in there. 1903 was also Charlie's rookie season in the majors. Ooh. And he opened his Hall of Fame career with a 17-win rookie campaign for Connie Mack's Philadelphia Athletics. Mm-hmm. Just a little fun fact added in there. There you go. You know, always, keep... always interested to add the Philadelphia Athletics, especially Connie Max. Yes, yeah, you know, and we're we're keeping tabs on Brother Charlie here as as time goes on. Too, exactly, so. exactly. Older brother John saw maybe a little bit of a promotion and began the 1904 season with the Hartford Senators of the Class D Connecticut State League, but was released after hitting only 188 in 21 games. Mm. So he slumped hard there. And it's the same, like, level of of competition. Yeah. Like, I mean, I mentioned it's maybe a little bit of a promotion, but, like, still, it's class It's class D. Yeah. And he's only hitting 188 uh, this time. Yeah, pretty small sample size still. True, true. But, but, they but he's not really getting into a lot of games most of the time. Anyway, he's typically a bench guy. But anyway, John Bender returned once again to the Northern League after that, landing with Fargo. And while back in familiar surroundings, he batted a career-high three forty-three. Also in limited action, though, as he only got into 29 games. Okay, yeah. But, you know, as that's I said, baseball in 50 games, he batted like 280. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> that's true. Yeah. Pretty consistent, actually, yeah, yeah, when yeah. you really think about it. Yeah. Uh, according to a 1905 article in Sporting Life, it was here, however, that a sad truth may have begun to show itself. Mm. Bender and teammate Joe Lynch were suspended for, quote, going too heavy on the liquid portion of Fourth of July celebrations. <laughs> Okay, that's one way of saying it. <laughs> yeah. Being like, those guys got wasted <laughs> yeah, at our party. Those guys got shit-faced. <laughs> we had a barbecue. It was supposed to be... There were children there. <laughs> Went a little heavy on the liquid portion, if you know what I mean. They should have eaten more meat. <laughs> and less of the liquid. If only there was more bread. Despite this setback, Bender signed with the Charleston Seagulls in 1905 of the Class C South Atlantic Sally League. Mm-hmm. It seemed like John had found his place as he would call Charleston home for the remainder of his life. Okay. He also began a relationship with the College of Charleston at this time and eventually became the coach of the school's football and baseball teams. Most importantly, it was in Charleston where John met future wife Teresa Delaney. So, as I mentioned, he played 1905 with the Seagulls in Charleston, who were dismal at the plate. They had a team average of only 201, and John posted the second highest average on the team at 264. Yeah. So John made the first of his recorded court appearances the following year in 1906. I just had too much liquid. (laughs) Too much liquid portion of the 4th of July. Yeah. So he was fined $20 by a Charleston police court, quote, for applying a vile epithet to a spectator. So he swore at somebody? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. So yeah, fine for speaking a term of abuse to a spectator. Yeah, well. Yeah. Just just ironic. Yeah. At that time. 
Because they probably said some shit to him. Yeah. I'm sure. Yes. Some racist ass oh, shit. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, no, no. I mean, just in the umpire was probably like the white player probably got to say whatever they wanted to the fan. And the umpire was like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so he was later sent to league rival to a league rival, the Augusta Tourist. Whether he was traded or just released is unclear, but it seems as though Bender may have been a bit in the of a pain in the ass for the teams that employed him. Mm-hmm. Between the two clubs that season, Bender batted an acceptable two thirty four. But the highlight of Bender's season was on August twenty sixth, nineteen oh six, when he married his wife Teresa at the Delaney residence in Charleston. Oh, so that's nice. Yeah, you know, finds a wife. Yeah, he finds a wife. His wife. <laughs> <laughs> Bender. Bender spent the early spring of 1907 coaching the College of Charleston baseball team with the permission from the Augusta Club, but John Bender's troubles began to get worse soon after. Oh. On May 9th, Bender failed to appear at the ballpark for a league game and drew a $10 fine and an indefinite suspension. Mm. It's kind of extreme, I think. For it seems that way anyway. For yeah. just like failing to appear for one game, so I think they're. I feel like it's been building a little bit, maybe. Well, yeah, maybe there has been at least one incident before. Mm-hmm. But he was eventually reinstated and avoided trouble for a short while. But on August first, manager Dick Crozier once again suspended Bender indefinitely, and this time fined the troubled outfielder twenty dollars for quote violation of team rules. Which is pretty vague. Yeah, could, could be anything, but I'm gonna guess it was too much drinking. Well, who knows, right? But yeah, no, it's but it's double. The fines are going up, mm-hmm. and yeah, yeah, he's getting. He's not. He's not yeah. making any. Uh, he's not building bridges. No. No. Uh, despite these problems, Bender batted a respectable by Sally League standards 250 in 106 games and earned himself a spot on the Augusta Reserve squad for 1908. But Bender's drinking problem had not in any way subsided. Early in the season, Bender was unable to make a road trip to Charleston. The Augusta Chronicle euphemistically claimed that Bender was, quote, too hilariously happy to make the trip on their April 19th edition, but the Macon Telegraph was much more clear in their assessment, saying, quote, Bender was unable to make the trip due to the quantity and quality of the liquid refreshment that he had taken on board the day previous. I love this. This is like a thousand, like a best euphemistic language about drinking. I don't know. <laughs> Trying to dress it up. Oh, a officer, I have just simply imbibed too much of the liquid that makes us all joyful. What crime have I committed now by being just so happy? <laughs> What's the charge? Eating a meal? A delicious Chinese meal? <laughs> a liquid meal? Uh... So, it seemed as though the club was ready to get rid of John, but manager Charlie Dexter was apparently unwilling to give up on Bender, who in his mind had, quote, one of the strongest and swiftest right arms in baseball. Dexter wanted to convert him into a pitcher, but the idea was kiboshed by club management. So they shut that down. And was, then his, it, was his brother a pitcher? Yeah. Chief Bender was a pitcher. Chief Bender was a pitcher. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, and then in May of 1908, Bender, sorry, to get started here, 
Ben, well, Bender was a pitcher before he came up to like the and he, professional and he's an outfielder, ranks right? or whatever. Now he's an outfielder. Yeah, 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 now he's an outfielder. Yeah. So in May of 1908, John Bender was ultimately released by Augusta. The Chronicle lamented, quote, Bender was, when right, is a good fielder, a fairly good hitter, and has one of the greatest arms in baseball. Booze has been the undoing of the big chief. Oh, dear. Yeah. <laughs> That's just... No. I mean, it's bad enough that we refer to his brother as chief. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's just... Ugh. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, also, yeah, you... Cultural genocide... Anyways, go yeah. go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Bender was then signed by another Sally League club, the Columbia Gamecocks. He was still drinking to excess, though, and was soon fined and suspended indefinitely by his new club... When he was eventually restored to the roster, Columbia manager first baseman Wynn Clark decided to try Bender as a pitcher and put Bender into a game on July 10th, which was already hopelessly lost to Macon. Okay. At one time, Bender was described to have, quote, one of the greatest arms ever seen in the South. But it proved not to be true, and eight hits later, starter Gus Salve was back on the mound for Columbia, and Bender's pitching career was over. Okay, so I th- I really <laughs> thought we were about to just have a, a transformation. <laughs> no. No, 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 that didn't work out at all. No, no, but his life was transformed. Okay. A few days later. All right. Because in the next few days, Bender was arrested for public intoxication while out drinking with, friend, with a friend. Okay. The manager, Wynn Clark, bailed Bender out of jail and then escorted him to the Iroquois, which was the steamship booked to take the team back to South Carolina. Okay, so he's so, 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 like, bails him out and he's like, get, get to the tugboat or whatever yeah, the fuck we're get riding. On the, get on the paddle boat here, buddy. <laughs> yeah. we got to get the fuck out of here yeah, yeah, and get out of Georgia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So... <laughs> So the Columbia State wrote on July 24th, 1908, quote, That night at the supper table, Bender again began to annoy the lady passengers, and Clark was again called down. Oh. So he's causing a disturbance <sighs> in the dining hall. Yes. So, okay. the, so the captain goes and wakes up the manager. Mm-hmm. And he's like, come get your boy. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So... As I say, a, sh- a ship steward calls Clark down to intervene with Bender after some complaints uh, by the women who said Bender is crazy drunk and wants to fight. Okay. <laughs> I mean, as as things go, if you get too wasted sometimes, so yeah. So they're is he trying to fight the women? No, no, he's <laughs> trying to fight Clark. Oh. This is the when, them recounting that he was oh. wanting to fight Clark. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, okay. Bender was, cr- we called Clark down and Clark came yeah, down yeah, and yeah. Bender was crazy drunk and wanted to fight, fight him. Clark. Yeah, of course. But Clark refused. Yeah. Because he's of stable mind and refuses to fight the drunken outfielder aboard the ship. Yeah, dude, don't do that. So Bender is banished from the dining room and then is waiting for Clark hiding in the corridor until the manager finishes his meal. And when he, uh, or maybe not even finishes his meal, maybe just finishes, like, settling down the commotion in yeah. the dining uh, hall. Uh, you gotta have a drink after that. At least a little appy before you That's go true. back to you bed. You gotta have a like, nightcap. Jesus yeah. Christ, I just had to, like, off, like I scored a uh, drunk person out. You just, need cocktail weenies yeah, and exactly. a shot of whiskey. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, you need a nightcap after that. Yeah, so uh, he's waiting in the 
He's waiting for Clark hiding in the corridor Jeez. until the manager finishes his meal. That's such a, a drunk person. I'm just going to duck down right here. And I'm going to get him. <laughs> and when Clark emerges from the dining area, Bender attacks him. Oh. But Clark knocked Bender to the floor for, and had the better of the fight until onlookers broke things up. But it was then discovered that Clark had been stabbed and was bleeding what? from wounds to the arm, chest, and torso. So... So this is his manager, right? Yeah. So Bender has like a knife on him oh, somehow what? now. Maybe he took it from the dining hall. I would, I would assume. Maybe. <laughs> so Clark's being stabbed. Yes. And? He's bleeding out. Well, I'm... A, okay. He's bleeding Not out. Not just bleeding, but bleeding out. But thankfully... Okay. Among the Iroquois passengers was a doctor named Weeks, who managed to stop Clark's bleeding before closing the wounds... With 40 to 50 improvised stitches made out of fishing line. Jeez. <laughs> yeah. 40 to 50. Yeah. That's a lot, man. That. It's a few wounds. Yeah. Yeah. No, and like. Arm, chest, and torso. Can we take a moment to, to discuss sure. the irony of the ship's name right now? <laughs> yes. <Yeah. laughs> like, there is a, a. Oh, God. Like, just. You've. They're, they're through reservations and Indian schools you've kind of created like something like you've you've made this person like you know obviously some people will be like you know you got to take responsibility yeah you shouldn't stab people no matter what has yeah. happened in your life but at the same point they're like we're on the Iroquois it's fun <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like no yeah. like yeah, don't name things after anyways yeah <laughs> yeah Okay, so he's got the stitches with the fishing line. Yeah. And once the ship reached port, Clark was rushed to the hospital, treated, and gained a stable condition. Oh, okay, good. Okay. Bender, meanwhile, was turned over to federal authorities for prosecution as the incident had occurred on the high seas. Jeez, I was just about to say, whose jurisdiction is that? <laughs> yeah, rather than in the jurisdiction of a particular state. <laughs> Agent Miller, Steamboat Division. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Gene Parmesan. <laughs> <laughs> Just comes out of this. That was like smokestack, steam stack. <laughs> yeah. Same thing. Same thing. Same thing. <laughs> so, pending proceedings in the United States District Court, Bender was placed in lockup. Thereafter, testimony by eyewitnesses, Augusta players, established him establish a prima facie case against Bender. Mm -hmm. So if you don't know what no, that is, no. I wasn't familiar what this is. I we had we to both got Aladdin in ours today. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's not that. It's It still was really that clear. But anyway, in a prima facie case, a plaintiff would typically need to prove that a defendant has met all the components uh -huh. of a prima facie tort case okay. in order to prove that the defendant committed that tort. Okay. So I guess they're basically like, just they have to prove that his intent was like to kill yeah. Clark. Well, I yeah. mean, yeah, hiding and waiting is it's yeah. not a good luck. No. no. <laughs> so so uh, here's an example that I, I also that I took. Uh, for example, in the tort of trespass, let's say, yeah. has a prima facie case with three components. The defendant had the intent to invade the land, and then the defendant did invade yeah. the land. And then once on the land... And then once on the land, the plaintiff possessed the land and did not consent to the defendant's invasion. Yes. So you planned it, you did it, and you wouldn't leave. Yes. <laughs> so yeah. those are three things right there. You did all three. Yeah. So You did these things without the consent of the person yeah. who's complaining about it. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So... I didn't say it was okay for him to stab me. <laughs> so, yeah, there's one. We're pretty sure he's not okay with what you did. 
<laughs> he was not looking to get 50 stitches that night. Yeah. So if the plaintiff is not able to prove one of these components, yeah. then a court will likely find that the tort did not occur. Okay. Okay. So anyway, so that's what's going on in the legal ramifications here. Gotcha. But with the victim on the men, Bender was released on a $1,000 bond posted by his wife. It's a big fucking chunk of money at that time. Huge chunk of money this at that time. 1908. Yep. Yep. When sufficiently recovered, Clark reluctantly testified against Bender, but made it clear that he had forgiven his teammate and did not wish to see him prosecuted. Wow. Yeah, okay, well, good for him. It's like you bailed him out of jail, got him onto the ship, you know, got him out of the dining room, and <laughs> that is a... And then he stabbed you. Yeah, that's, yeah, I that's mean, cool, but man. Good, yeah, good for him. Yeah. Good for him. Turn the other cheek. Yeah. Uh, but still, U.S. Magistrate Arthur Young held the charges over for trial during the coming court term. Mm-hmm. Prosecutors, however, presumably acting upon Clark's wishes, declined to pursue the case... And charges were quietly dismissed about a year later. Okay. So he gets off. Mm-hmm. He gets off. He gets out of it. Baseball, however, was not as lenient with John. No. And within 24 hours, Bender had been fined and suspended by the Columbia Club. And Sally League President Boyer vowed to seek Bender's permanent banishment from organized baseball. Saying, quote, he will never again play in the South Atlantic League. At least while I'm president. <laughs> We've had back-to-back episodes. Yeah, yeah. And on, well, I mean, yeah. And, I mean, stabbing your manager several times will lead to some banishment. Yeah. You know? It's, it's, it's pretty good reason. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's some consequences here. Yeah. Uh, so, for 1909, Bender remained on the reserve lift for Columbia, even though he was still suspended and the team couldn't use him. Mm-hmm. But despite his heinous attack on his manager, John had many supporters especially in Charleston, which by now he had adopted as his new hometown. And the people there hoped for Bender's reinstatement. The Columbia executives at the beginning of the season did not seek reinstatement for their suspended outfielder, but later gave in to to pressure on behalf of Bender sent by telegraph by some of Charleston's most prominent citizens. So the so the bougie people of Charleston are like, ah, it's fine. He's fine. He's fine. But you should send him up here. Play baseball. He lives here. We yeah. drink with him all the time. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, no. That's it. So he does have he does have a he does have his fans and he and he really is well, I mean he's he's working at the university still, right? Like, yeah, he's yeah. still coaching at the college. Yeah, so that allows him to also like that yeah, that's that's a pretty, you know, hub of culture at the mm. time, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So yeah. So the team capitulated that they would petition for John's reinstatement if he agreed to pay an outstanding fine of $50. Okay. So like, you still owe us 50 bucks, John. <laughs> he can play for us. You play, you pay us the 50 bucks, we'll, we'll, we'll ask the league if he can come back. <laughs> <laughs> but then if reinstated, Columbia was to sell Bender's contract to Charleston. Okay. Okay. But President Boyer would not have it. He's like, remember what I said. I can't go back on my word. I can't go back on my word. He will never again play in the South Atlantic League, at least while I'm president. Mm -hmm. At least. (laughs) So while serving his suspension, John passed the time by continuing to coach at the College of Charleston. Mm -hmm. And his lawyers advised him not to comment on the stabbing incident. (laughs) 
Yeah, don't talk about that, man. Yeah, which, he, which he didn't. <laughs> it's a great, it's a really good dinner party. I, I like, just, yeah. <laughs> just don't. Yeah, okay, all right. But let me, just one more person? Like, no, no, no. Uh, okay. Right. Sorry, John. Sorry, John. Nobody. Uh, so he was advised not to talk about the incident, but to those near and far to Bender, it was clear that he was remorseful. Okay, that's good. Despite the assault and his other shortcomings, Bender was well-liked by his fellow players fan- and fans across the Sally League, league officials and the press. And when it, came- and when it became clear that Wing Clark was going to make a full recovery, many began to feel sorry for John and would not have had a problem with his reinstatement. But still, the prospect of returning seemed bleak. Although in 1910, the Sally League had a new president in Cap Joyner. All right. And he received a petition for Bender's return, which he referred to the collective club ownership. Uh Uh-huh. But no action was taken. Yeah. They were just like, yeah, whatever. Okay. We're ignoring this for now. So a little momentum is building here. Mm Mm-hmm. But still nothing's really going on. But early in 1911, Ed Rancic... The Charleston manager called up Columbia to discuss the release of Bender to the Seagulls. By this point, there was a lot of support in Bender's corner. Sally League sports writers publicly urged league officials to forgive Bender's crimes. And more progress was made towards his case for reinstatement. Which John quickly jeopardized by getting himself arrested on a street robbery charge. What? <laughs> when he was, according to the Charleston News and Courier on March 12, 1911, accused of taking $15 from L.M. Hartley on Meeting Street in Charleston. Okay. <laughs> I need this 15 bucks. I'm trying to get the 50 yeah. so I can play baseball again. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. So that's no good. No, so he fucks that up. Yep. But they just ignored that. Oh, that's good. Yeah. And then Columbia President F.C. Williams put his signature of acceptance on the Bender reinstatement petition. And on March 20th, Joyner granted the request. As Bender was preparing to rejoin the Columbia squad, the Philadelphia A's came to town for a preseason game against the Charleston Seagulls, which brought baby brother Charlie to town. And they embraced for the first time in nine years. (laughs) How's it going, man? Not good. (laughs) I got some stories. (laughs) I'm not allowed to talk about it, though. Lawyers, you know? (laughs) So he's like, yeah, sure, man. (laughs) Nice to see you, too. I was 17 and 14 last year. Yeah. I got a Hall of Fame career I'm percolating. (laughs) So now 32, John is, and after a three-year sabbatical, Bender was beginning to show some rust, and the Macon Telegraph was of the opinion that Bender would have a tough time cracking the roster. Quote, Chief Bender is also trying for a place on the Columbia Club, but the old war horse has slowed up considerably, and he will have a tough time beating Marty Krug out for the left field job. Okay. So they don't think he's they don't think he's uh he's gonna make the team there. And Bender was released and he signed with Charleston, but his time as a seagull was short also. He batted a dismal one eighty nine in thirty eight games mm-hmm. and he was released again. The Charleston Evening Post also was down on John and wrote that he was showing his age, quote John is not considered fast enough for the rejuvenated club and has not hit well as an outfielder should. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's, that's... There's, you gotta be... You gotta run and hit. Yeah. 
that's basically the two things and then catch you know that's uh yeah but they're very straight into the point that john's not he's not good to go anymore he's lost a step in the outfield he's rusty after three years his bat speed's gone yeah you know and how old is he at this point he's in his his 30s 32 yeah so yeah Yeah. so it's the decline Mm -hmm. and the hard life has taken oh. its toll at this point. Yeah, okay. So John seems to be at the end of his baseball days. He's had a long break and he's lost a step, but John Bender had one more stop in his baseball career, one a long, long way from home and even further from his adopted home. Bender's final professional destination was to play for the Edmonton Eskimos of the Class D Western Canada League. Awesome. Yes. I mean... Uh, okay. Yeah, we've 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 talked about this league once before. I think. I think. I we? think somebody played in this league at some point. <laughs> well, in baseball history. Yeah. Well, John Donaldson went up north and played in Saskatoon and yeah. in some places like that. I don't know if that was necessarily in the Western Canada League. He was more of a barn You know, you know who it was? It might have been. Uh, it might have been uh, one of the uh, umpires. Mm. Uh, that that actually did that after but anyways continue ashford probably i'm an ashford uh, but yeah continue anyway, anyway. <laughs> yeah uh, so but even the last lackluster ranks of the class d western canadian league proved to be too much for john bender who had clearly lost all ability to play at a professional level by this point and he batted a paltry 213 and collected just three hits for extra bases in his 33 games and then on september 2nd 1911 the day before the league season ended, Bender was cut for a third time that year. Oof. Yeah. So it's over. It's over for John. Yeah. But Bender didn't go home. He remained in Edmonton and made his residence in the Pendennis Hotel. In fact, John Bender would never return home again. Whoa. Years of hard living had stricken John with a heart disease at a young age, and on the morning of September 25th, 1911, John Bender went to a local breakfast cafe called Lewis Brothers Cafe at 627 First Street in Edmonton at about 9.15 a.m. and had died suddenly and without warning. And had died. I thought you were going to say, like, that's what he had for breakfast. And he had died and suddenly. And I'm like, what? (laughs) He had died suddenly and without warning as he allegedly ordered breakfast, according to the story reported in the evening edition of the Edmonton Daily Bulletin. I like that they alleged, like, we're pretty sure he was ordering breakfast. We're not 100%, so we can't say that for sure. He may have been getting lunch at breakfast. (laughs) He made him in crazy. He made him, like, spaghetti for lunch. We don't know. (laughs) Spaghetti for breakfast. (laughs) We don't know. So until we know 100%, which we'll never know, it's allegedly that he he was was getting breakfast breakfast at a breakfast place. (laughs) Maybe this is why it was alleged. A rival newspaper, the Edmonton Journal, reported much of the same, but their telling claimed that Bender had already eaten his meal. Oh my God, this is a scandal. Jesus. (laughs) Left the restaurant and then returned later to meet friends at 9.05 a.m., at which point the sudden death occurred. Okay, okay. So it might have been a second breakfast. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. There's also... I'm not sure if I even mention it. There's... Just reading the rest of it. Yeah, there's like, yeah, sorry. There's like, yeah I'll cut that out. Yeah. There's uh, there, like, there's mentioned that like 
a bunch of rumors got started. I don't know if it's like because it took a while for news to get back to Georgia and North yeah, and South, South Carolina. Carolina. Yeah. But like there were rumors circulating that like he died on the field and stuff and he Whoa. like kind of became like a little bit more of like a legend for that. Did you hear years. that John went up to Edmonton? Motherfucker hit a home run, died right on the spot. <laughs> yeah. Like that. His heart exploded. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but so, so stories like that were kind of circulating. Yeah. Er, and and for a while, like until that was kind of rectified years later, like he kind of had more a bit more of like a legend than it's one of those things he wished was not cleared up. Yeah. 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 Uh so a coroner's cer- a coroner's certificate subsequently cited acute dilation of the heart as the cause of death. Okay. And so at that point, Deacon White, who had signed Bender to play for the Eskimos before resigning as manager, immediately wired John's famous brother, Charles Chief Bender, in Philadelphia. Let him know. Okay. Okay, here I do mention it. And then somehow a rumor got started that John died on the field. And I'll read here from Rich Necker's article, The Curious Case of John Bender, from attheplate.com. Quote, Somehow news of the circumstances surrounding his death after being relayed to his surviving family in the United States became exaggerated and sensationalized. It is not clear as to exactly how and why the details got blown out of proportion, but two known 1911 newspaper sources cited by authors Robert M. Gorman and David Weeks in their book, Death at the Ballpark, a comprehensive (laughs) study of game-related fatalities, 1862 to 2007. I knew you knew that book. I know that book. Convey that his sudden passing occurred while on the playing field. Articles entitled, Bender Dies of Heart Failure, which was in the News and Courier of Charleston, South Carolina, on September 27, 1911, and John Bender Dies in Baseball Game, which was in the evening Sentinel of Carlisle, Pennsylvania on September 30th, 1911, definitely transmit this message. Well, that's one last thing Carlisle could do for him is just fucking lie about his death. <laughs> yeah. They're yeah. like, probably were like, great yeah. baseball player and person that Carlisle made into a great person and is now like, dude, mm-hmm. just so fucking, yeah, fuck Carlisle. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so he didn't die on the field. He he yeah. died at a breakfast place. Yeah, allegedly. 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 Uh, ordering breakfast. breakfast. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was a diner. We don't know if you can really say it was a breakfast diner. I you know that's hearsay. The that's man hearsay. was uh, pronounced dead at uh, 9.08. And what was he ordering? <laughs> Eggs uh, Benedict? Eggs Benedict? <laughs> I don't think that's important right now, son. No, no, we need it to know. It is to me. <laughs> I'm with the Edmonton Evening Post. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay. After a slow railway passage to Charleston, funeral services were conducted at the Bender residence on Calhoun Street, and on October 7, 1911, John Bender was laid to rest at St. Lawrence Cemetery in Charleston. And that's the story of the life of John Bender, who died a very young age after a hard life at 32 years old. Yeah. His brother went on to a great Hall of Fame career, and his brother, in fact, actually pitched the day that he His died? brother died. Wow. Yes. Yeah. I don't think he had the news at that point. No, but he probably wouldn't have. But that's like, I honestly thought that that was going to be on, on Charlie Bender, the, the Hall of Famer. No. No. And, and I've wanted to do, see, now I'm like. Three old curveball. Yeah, you did. You did. You really did. That's why I love this podcast. I, I was like, 
okay, yeah, I know, I know, you know, Chief Bender, whatever, like, it'll be interesting to hear about him, and then I was like, you know, like, 10, 15 minutes in, I'm like, wait, why are we talking about his brother so much? Yeah, <laughs> I had his, no idea. His that. older brother that stabbed his manager, yeah, fucking, and, you know, you know. Yeah, had wow. A, had a shitty growing up in, uh. I mean, well, that's what I mean. Like, we, I love that you kind and of outlined stuff. Yeah, you well, you outlined not only the the Indian schools, but but also you know the way that they were legislated into reservations and stuff too. Mm-hmm. And, and mm-hmm. that's what I mean. As somebody who's you know family, you know, obviously not in my past, you know, fifty years or so. But like, when, you know, I had you know a great uncle or a great aunt or probably a great uncle that went to Carlisle because mm-hmm. that's the same thing. It's just like, well, you're going to go there and you're going to learn to be white, yeah. right? Like, it's fucked yeah. up. Yeah, it's, it's fucked, really up. fucked it's, up. Yeah, and so obviously some people that was and made them better and then some people it, it caused them to be confused and bitter and hurt and did terrible, terrible things. So fuck that. Yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> fuck that. Yeah, so that, that shit sucks. Fuck colonialism. Yeah, there you go. Uh, but I'm glad you brought this story to everybody's attention. Uh, I'm glad you, uh, as you say, added a little Canadian flavor there. Uh, not that you, you know, yeah. <laughs> that's the only reason to that you did this story. No, but. it's definitely not the reason I did that story, no. But yeah, all right. Well, I mean, I feel like uh, in an interesting spot after this one, you're definitely going to make me reflect on a lot of things. And honestly, thanks so much for that story. I had no idea. Uh, about John Bender. Well, you're welcome. I'm happy to bring that uh, interesting story well, of a Hall of Famer's brother that nobody thinks about. Yeah. No, honestly. that's what we do here on Tom <laughs> Baseball. We're being so congenial to each other. <laughs> yeah. Like, thanks so much, man. Yeah. <laughs> it's, that's why we do this, because we love doing it. Yeah. Um, uh, thanks so much. Uh, we'll tune in in two weeks. We'll have another story for you. Uh, follow us on all the social medias and stuff. We said it at the beginning of the show. We don't need to say it again. Uh, give us a review Give us a rating. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks so much for listening. Uh, Let us know if you have any ideas or if you just like us in any way. Because we love you. (laughs) Until next time. I'm Sean. And I'm Itz. And we're doing the baseball. See ya. Okay, bye.